0: This morning, we're going to talk about step
1: 12. All right, I'm, I'm going to just uh, read the format first. Okay. Okay. Uh, hey everybody, and welcome mm-hmm. to Scott State Big Book Study, where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today's date is the 27th of May, 2023. My name is Johan, and I am a compulsive war eater from Sweden. And I will be your host for today. Our co-hosts today are Tonya and Sue. And uh, Tonya will do the Q&A later on. Great. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts by private message in the chat function. The chat function will be disabled until five minutes before the questions and answers session. Please note that the speaker, Holland G will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answer session, which follows, will not be recorded. We ask if you can please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also please turn off your video if you're exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for, a- for any reason. And during the meeting, we will post a link to our seven tradition. This money goes towards the cost of our Zoom account, the cost for uploading our recordings, and we will also send contributions to our intergroup and WSO. We will post a link to the previous week's recordings. These are available by clicking on the link that will be posted in the chat box. And now, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> I will turn the meeting over to Mr. Harlan G. <laughs> thank thank you. you, thank you,
0: John. Thank you very much. I'm really glad to be here. And as
1: I say, most
0: weeks, I say this just about every week. Uh, I'm. I hope it is absolutely glorious where you are, as it is here in Scottsdale, Arizona, this morning. It's a glorious morning. We are going to talk about step 12, and we're going to talk about the chapter working with others. But before we even endeavor to page 89, and we're going to start at the beginning of the chapter, let's talk about some other things that are extremely pertinent when it comes to step 12. We, as children, we have usually an absolute abnormal reaction to food. Now some of us I shouldn't say as children because some of you had reactions that didn't manifest in their life until later on in your life. Some of you were adult onset. Some of you had 10, 20, 30 years of freedom from this and then all of a sudden you just realized, "Oh my god, this is just this is something I just cannot control." And there is a tremendous amount of pain and shame and secrecy and just horrible, horrible feelings that come over one when one is afflicted with this illness. One of my favorite books when I was younger uh, was Moby Dick, Melville's Moby Dick. And, you know, I parallel Moby Dick to, to the big book of AA in this respect. In Moby Dick, Captain Ahab had an obsession of the mind. He was absolutely obsessed with a white whale. And he believed in his mind that if he could destroy this white whale, that his life would somehow be fantastic. And we read I read every morning of my life, I read pages 60 to 63 and it says selfishness. And it talks about how I wanna write the script for life. And it talks about how I believe that if everybody would just stick to my script, not only would my life be better, but your lives would be better too. That if you just did what I wanted you to do, everybody would be happy and we know that that is just not true and ahab had this obsession and i had an obsession for food that was very parallel to that and we go through our lives and if you're bulimic, it's a world of secrecy. If you're anorexic, it's a world of pain and shame. The, esophog- the esophaguses of the bulimics, I mean, the surgeries are just unbelievable. And you know, it's just an unbelievable situation with the obesity from the from the compulsive overeaters who come from my side of it. Without going into a whole lead, without going into my whole history here my situation was extremely painful. And I bet yours was too. And why would I bet that yours was too? Because if you didn't suffer the kind of pain that we all suffer, you wouldn't be here this morning. This was not something I'm going to guess you aspired to as children. I'm going to guess that you didn't say when you were a little kid, you know what, mom, one day, I'm going to be a member of Overeaters Anonymous. And your mom would look down and say, now you can do it. You, can. I bet that conversation never took place. But yet here you are. And one of the things about Melville's Moby Dick is that the obsession destroyed not only Captain Ahab, but it destroyed the people around him. It took to death everybody around him, save one. And that one person at the end of the novel, he says, I alone survived so I could tell thee. You survived so far. You survived the onslaught of an extremely lethal disease. You survive this mentally and physically, and you owe. You owe a debt because you see every person here is the recipient of an inheritance. We are all trust fund babies. And in 1935 in Akron, Ohio, a spark was struck and that spark gave way to Dr. Bob getting sober and Dr. Bob and, and Bill Wilson, they passed this message to Bill Dotson and Archie Throwbridge and Fitz Mayo and they passed it to, to others. They passed it one shaky hand to the next. And one day that message got to a guy and his name was Jim Willis. And Jim Willis was a guy who in 1955 found himself in a place called Oxnard, California. And in Oxnard, California, he believed that because he was also afflicted with an addiction to gamble, that he would found a fellowship of people that were gamblers, that were not alcoholics necessarily, so they too could have a place to come and share their hope, strength, and experience. And he founded an organization called Gamblers Anonymous. And Gamblers Anonymous took hold in Oxnard, California in 1955. And in 1959, in November, he, along with four other compulsive gamblers, they got on a show called the Paul Coates Show, C-O-A-T-E-S, the Paul Coates Show. And it was a talk show that was broadcasted in five cities in California. One of those cities happened to be, thank God, Los Angeles, California. And in Los Angeles, California, in November of 1959, watching the Paul Coates show was a housewife in West LA, and her name was Roseanne Scholar. And Roseanne had two little babies at that time. And she she was watching TV late at night. And she noticed that everything that these gamblers said applied to a friend of her husband, Marvin's. Marvin was her husband. And Marvin's friend was also a degenerate compulsive gambler. And she said to Marvin the next morning that she felt that it would be beneficial to Marvin's friend if they took him to a meeting of Gamblers Anonymous. And in in November of 1959, they went to Los Angeles, California, and they went to a meeting of Gamblers Anonymous. And the more she sat in the back of that room at that early GA meeting, she realized that she could relate to these gamblers and their lying and their hiding and their world and their life and the things that they went through right down the line. Because she, although she didn't know it at the time, was a compulsive overeater. And Jim Willis happened to be at that meeting in Los Angeles in November of 1959. And he was there and she came up to him at the end of the meeting and she said to Jim, Jim, do you think a program like yours with these steps could help someone like me with their food? And he heard the pain in her voice and he turned to her and said, you know, Roseanne, I don't see why not. And on January the 19th, 1960, in West Los Angeles, California, the very first meeting of Overeaters Anonymous took place. Now, in Luling, Texas, there was a guy that lived there and his name was A.G. Ainsworth. I can see him now. He and I had many very nice conversations. He's gone. But he, he was a great big Texan. And he lived in a place called Luling, Texas. And Luling, Texas was the home of not only A.G. Ainsworth, but it was the home of his friend Robert. And Robert and A.G. Ainsworth, they went on a retreat, an a, a church retreat, not an AA retreat, a church retreat. And Robert and and A.G. Ainsworth were driving home from this retreat on a Sunday afternoon, and they were going to stop at a German bakery in Luling, Texas, and load up on donuts and cake and cookies and things like that. And A.G. Ainsworth had had his fill of that stuff, and he didn't want to do that to himself. And he said to Robert, almost jokingly, so that he couldn't get chastised for it if Robert made fun of him. He said, Robert, you're a member of AA. Do you think a program like yours with steps in the book, do you think that could help a person like me with their food? And Robert heard the pain in A.G.'s voice, and he turned to A.G. Ainsworth, and he said, you know, AG, I don't see why not. And there was a, a woman in Luling, Texas. There was a, a person there called, um, uh, 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 what were they called? Uh, 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 hold on one second. They, she became the co-founder of another GA because it was Gluttons Anonymous. And in Gluttons Anonymous, Her name was Wanda B. Sorry about that. Norma B. Norma B. My brain. I didn't get any younger. Trust me. I didn't get any younger. And my brain is not what it used to be. Norma B. And A.G. Ainsworth founded an organization in Luling, Texas called Gluttons Anonymous. And they're sprung up in Luling, Texas, five groups. Of Gluttons Anonymous. And if you look up in any good dictionary, in any good dictionary, and you look up this word glutton, you will find a description of me that fits to a T. Glutton absolutely fits me to a T. Many of you in here have heard me say that I had that story with my mother, and my mother would say, a Gaitis, my son, a Gaitis, my son, which means it's always something with you. My- my son, you always want something. And she was 100% correct. And so I have to check that with God every single day. And I'm learning some new skills lately about some of those very things. And I think I'm I think I'm changing and I think I'm getting the help that I need here. So I'm changing a little bit and not a little bit. I'm changing quite a bit in that direction. But one day, A.G. Ainsworth, on a Sunday afternoon from Luling, Texas, they decided that not on the Sunday, they called during the week. They called the AA office in New York City during that week. And they asked in 1962, they asked, Is there a group that you guys know of that is using the big book of AA and the steps around food? And they gave him Roseanne's phone number. And on a Sunday afternoon, they called Roseanne and it was like Stanley finding Livingston. There were 16 groups of Overeaters Anonymous at that time and five groups of Gluttons Anonymous at that time. And so AG spoke to Roseanne and flew five representatives of each of the groups that were there of Gluttons Anonymous, including himself to Los Angeles on his private jet. He had a private plane. He was a cattleman and he did very well with cattle. And he flew out there and he became not only the first male in Overeaters Anonymous, because up to that point, the charter of OA forbade men from coming in. It was an organization for women only. No men were allowed. Not only did he become the first man in OA, but he became the first chairman of the board of trustees. And in a vote of 16 to 5, 16 groups, I've told you, of OA and five groups of Gluttons Anonymous. And in a vote of 16 to 5, we became Overeaters Anonymous and we were on our way. Now, every good deed achieves instant immortality and we are all carrying a message. We are carrying a message whether we want to be carrying one or not. I was in complete relapse when my daughter was 19 months old, and I was gaining weight in leaps and bounds. I had had some beautiful recovery, but I was living out in Eugene, Oregon. There is no OA there. And while the cat was away, I, the mouse, was going to play. And I'm eating my head off, and I'm in very bad relapse. My daughter was 19 months old at this time. It was August. And it, by the way, you will never find a more glorious summer than the Willamette Valley of Oregon. It is absolutely to die for. That's those summer, the nine summers that I spent in Eugene, Oregon, weather wise, climate wise, could not have been any better. But anyway, i that's an aside. Uh, but I am absolutely in total relapse at this time. And we are all carrying a message. And when my daughter was 19 months old, she was in her diaper. It was also a Sunday morning. And my daughter was just kind of dodging my then wife's actions through the kitchen. My my, my then wife had bought about four grocery stores worth of food. And she's putting it away and bagging it up. And my daughter opens up the refrigerator door with her little hand. And she turned her head to her mother and said, shit, Esther, there's nothing in here. I wonder where she got that from. She learned that from daddy. And if looks could kill, I would have been vaporized. So we are all carrying a message. Now, some of us are carrying, sadly, the message that this doesn't work. Some of us are carrying a message that says, this does not work. That's sad, but it's true. Now, some of us are carrying a message of hope and strength. I have a friend in here from out of town, and he's very, very dear to me. I love him as much as I've ever loved any human being in my whole life he has been there for me through thick and thin and I have to watch him die I have to watch him die he can barely walk he is circling the drain I'm going to see him all day today and all day tomorrow and I have to hold my tongue because if I say anything It just makes it worse. I wish I could carry the message to him, but I can't. Because the message has to have two factors. There has to be a message and there has to be an open receiver. And right now with my friend, the receiver has been shut off. He's dying. He can't walk a block. The last time I was with him in Chicago, in Arlington Heights, he could barely walk back to the parking lot. And I don't think it was a full block away from where we ate dinner. He couldn't make it. He couldn't make it. He had to sit down a couple of times and he's in the same boat now. So the message has to have a sender and it has to have a receiver we have to know that we are carrying a message and every good deed achieves instant immortality. And I had a friend and his name was Scott. He was an actor and he was uh, a Jewish kid, but he was an actor and he got a part on Broadway, not in an off, you know, not not on top of some bowling alley or something. He was on Broadway, he got a part. Uh, if any of you remember, uh, Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. He was in that on, in, on Broadway, Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. He was in that. And while he was in that, he met a lady that and they got married and they lit out for Los Angeles, California. They were going to go out there and they were going to um, try to take the world by storm. Either they're going to be in movies or TV or commercials, whatever came their way. And he was a very active AA member. Now, when he came into OA, it was the food that eventually killed him. But when he was a very active AA member, he used to do service on Saturday nights. And on Saturday nights, he would go uh, and and answer the phone for Alcoholics Anonymous. And people would call in and he and another gentleman would go out on the calls. They always go with two. They don't usually go with one. They go with two. And one day they went out to East LA and they were going out there to visit a guy who called from a motel and the motel uh, or excuse me. And the guy was pretty drunk and they came into his room and they could see after a while, they're talking to him, but more than anything, this guy is falling asleep and they talked to him for about an hour and they realized he's, he's pretty much asleep. We're just going to take his shoes off, put him in bed and go. Five years later, five years later, he is speaking. Scott is not the guy from the motel. He, Scott is speaking at an Alcathon at the Sheraton in, on Mission Bay in San Diego. I'm going to San Diego to do a workshop this, this uh, fall. I'll be there in October. But anyway, they go out. He goes out there and he is the speaker uh, uh, from 11 to 11.50 11. a.m. And then they break for lunch. This guy comes up to him after he does his talk and plants a bear hug on him, plants a bear hug on him and says, you saved my life. You're Scott. He says, yeah, you saved my life. He says, gosh, I don't know you. And the guy says, oh, yeah, that's right. He says, do you remember a few years ago you were at a motel in East L.A.? And Scott says, yeah, but that wasn't you. He says, oh yeah, that guy died about three months after you were there. He says, no, I was hiding under the bed. I was hiding under the bed and I heard every word you said and I haven't had a drink since that day. You don't know how a message achieves Instant immortality. You don't know some of the words you read in this big book of AA or some of the things you hear at a meeting. We don't always know where they came from. But the good deed achieves an instant immortality. So he was talking to a guy that wouldn't hear the message. And there was a guy hiding under the bed that heard it and transmitted the message to others. We owe. This is not a free ride. Giving of oneself is not a natural thing for me. I am a taker. I want to be given to. I am by my nature, selfish, self-seeking, immature. I am by my nature, a wanting baby, a child, an insatiable child. And I have to work against that every day. Some days I'm more successful than others. Some days I'm less successful than others, but when I am childlike, I pay a price. So when I came into these rooms, we had the ABCs, ashtrays, brooms, and chairs. And we would empty the ashtrays. Yes, you could smoke in OA meetings when I first came in. In most buildings, other than hospitals, you could smoke. And brooms, we would sweep the floor every at the end of every meeting, and we would put up the chairs. There was the ABCs of recovery. Now, is that the kind of service that we're talking about in the big book? No. No, it's not. Because there is no substitute for sponsorship. There's we need other things. We need somebody to run the bookstore. We need somebody to distribute the literature. We need a treasurer. We need somebody to run the the workshop in Flagstaff, or we need somebody to run the workshop that we're going to be doing here in Phoenix next summer, which I'm looking forward to. Somebody has to be in charge of the birthday in Los Angeles in January. Those are wonderful forms of service, but they are not a substitute for sponsorship. Sponsorship is the form of service that is the most pure and the most beneficial, not only to the sufferer, but to the suffering. So we have a situation, we have a situation where Clancy Imislin teaches us something that we need to know. And so does Ebby, and so does the big book of AA. Clancy Emmisland is one of my heroes. I love Clancy and I get a lot out of his podcast. Maybe you don't, maybe you do. He doesn't go through the steps quite like I do or like Joe and Charlie do, but he has a lot to say if you're open to it. And one of the things he says constantly is we do not learn this program by absorbing spiritual information. We learn the program by transmitting spiritual information and this is something that is very important and you see i see sponsors all the time and they want to make this into a six month three month six month year process the shorter the process the more effective it is because we have to get you to page 89 and on page 89 it says Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. We need to get you to that spot. You have the rest of your life to do an in-depth, pedantic study of the book and the steps but let's get you free of the food and let's get you to the point where you are in 10, 11, and 12, probably still working on nines because nines can take a long time. But when you start working on your nines and you're doing 10s and 11s and 12s, now you can really start learning the program because you are transmitting that spiritual information. In Bill Dotson's story, Alcoholics, anonymous number three, we are reminded that Dr. Bob, now I'm going to let you in on a secret here, but don't tell anybody. There's over 160 of you here. So I just want to keep this between us, okay? Dr. Bob did not get freaking sober on June the 10th, 1935. He got sober on June 17th because Bill and Bob were terrible with dates. I'm pretty decent with dates. They sucked at it. They were probably better at math than I, but I am better with dates than them. But what I can tell you is the convention that Bob went to started on the 10th. It didn't end that time. It started that time, but that's okay. You can look it up yourself. Google 1935 American Medical Association Convention, and you'll see that it he could not have gotten sober on the 10th. Okay, that aside, let's assume the 10th. Now, Dr. Bob was calling on Bill Dotson on, J- on June 26, 1935, and Bill Dotson was the third or fourth guy that he called on. So Dr. Bob was sponsoring, looking for people who wanted to receive the message 16 days after he got sober. How many of you were looking for sponsees 16 days after you got sober? I don't hear anything because we are going too slowly in a lot of circumstances with our sponsees, too slowly. We need to hasten the pace. I know I'm going to get a lot of questions. I know I'm going to get a lot of criticism. But these ideas of all these writing assignments is often counterproductive. These are my opinions. Don't throw them in my face. But the big book bears me out. There are writing assignments in four, eight, and sometimes nine. That's it. Four, eight, and sometimes nine there's no written assignments in any of these other steps. There's none. There's nothing in this book that says write this or do that. A lot of that comes from Fred Schneider. Fred was a school teacher in Brooklyn, New York, and he did what school teachers do, what they are given to do. He created a curriculum of readings and writings to get us through the steps more efficiently. And he started a program called HOW, H, honest, O, open, W, willing, H, O, W, how. And in the HOW program, which I am not criticizing, I am not commenting one way or the other. there's a lot of people on here, HOW works for them. That's fantastic. I don't find problems with how I knew Fred. He knew me. He wanted me to come to the how meetings. He says, I need you, Harlan, because he would come to Chicago a lot. And there's a meeting in Evanston, Illinois, at the First Presbyterian Church that used to meet there on Saturday mornings, First Pres, and he would always say, oh, Harlan's here, Harlan's here. I'm so glad Harlan's here. And I realized he wanted me sort of in the fold over there, which was fine, which was great. But the bottom line is, there is no writing in one, two, three, five, six, seven, 10, 11, or 12. No writing at all. Okay, so we have a situation where I've given you some of my opinions. Don't throw them in my face, I've presented them as my opinions, but we need to look at what's in the book. And the book is telling us that it's very important for us to get to this point where you can get this immunity. It says nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. Now, I'm going to do one more paragraph, and this is a paragraph that I assign to my sponsees to read every day of their lives, and it is what I call Ebby's. Inheritance or Ebby's gift. Ah, it's at the bottom of page 14. It's at the bottom of page 14, and it is something that Ebby has left us as a gift. And it says at the bottom of 14, my friend had emphasized the absolute necessity. I'm on the last paragraph of 14 of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. That's the third. Step 12 is a three-part step. Having had a spiritual awakening. So that's the first thing. You don't have to have a certain weight to to sponsor or a certain uh, tenure in OA. If you've had a spiritual awakening, you're good to go. It does not say when you've been here six months. It does not say when you've been here 20 years. It does not say that. You can sponsor after a week and a half if you've had a spiritual awakening. And then the third, second one is try to carry this message. What message is that? The message of the big book. It's not my message. You, if you're trying to get abstinent on my message, uh, uh, I feel sorry for you because I couldn't even get me sober. I can't get you sober. And then the third part is um, practice these principles. What are the principles? The principles are the steps. You know, this stuff you hear about the principle of this is hope and the principle of this is honesty. That came out decades after these guys were dead. That is a product more of the 80s and the 90s. These guys didn't know from that. When he writes about the principles, he's talking about the steps. My friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs, particularly was it imperative. What does imperative means? It means important above all else. So it's imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Now, I am not diminishing being the treasurer. I'm not diminishing being the literature person or the head of the retreat committee. I'm not diminishing that. We need that kind of service. And without it, we can't function as an organization. But when he is talking about service here, he is talking about to work with others as he had worked with me, which means sponsorship, sponsorship, Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic, for if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life, now big book, how do you perfect and enlarge your spiritual life? Through service and self-sacrifice for others, and that means sponsorship. He could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again. If he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. We have to look at Ebby's gift. And we have to look at what we're getting here. He is telling us, sponsor? or die. There is no middle ground. Sponsor or die in the food. That's an ugly choice. I think I'd rather sponsor. Now, some of you really don't want to sponsor because I hear this every day. You don't want to sponsor. What I'm hearing when you say that is, I'm afraid I won't be the perfect sponsor. Don't worry about it. We're not in the results business. Nobody is the perfect sponsor, except for me. No, I'm kidding. Nobody is the perfect sponsor. My sponsees don't all recover. I've got many hundreds of sponsees through the years that are right now in line at the ice cream shop or Dunkin' Donuts or Portillo's or God knows where they're in line, God knows where doing God knows what. So I sponsor who I can, who will receive the message. For those of you don't know, Portillo's is a hot dog stand that started in Villa Park, Illinois. And I was just thinking about it last night, but that's okay. But anyway, the bottom line is, is that, um, or Addison? No, I think it's Villa Park. But anyway, um, the bottom line is, is that I am not the perfect sponsor. And if you want to recover, Mickey Mouse could sponsor you. And if you don't want to recover, Bill Wilson could sponsor you and you won't recover. Remember what we talked about, guys? The message has to have a transmitter and it has to have a receiver. About five minutes after this is over today, I'm going to pick up my friend and he's gonna to struggle to get in my car. And I have a big car. I, have a, I don't have a small car, I have a big car. He can't hardly get in and he can hardly get out because he doesn't have his receiver on. I have a transmitter, but it's falling on a deaf, two deaf ears. So last night I sat up in bed and I cried, tears, boo-hoo and tears, because he's circling the drain and there's not a damn thing I can do about it, not a damn thing. Sponsorship, let's go to page 89, 89. It says here, it works when other activities fail. I just read you the first part of that first paragraph. This is our 12th suggestion. When no one else, carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill. Remember when Dr. Silkworth told us in the doctor's opinion. Remember when Dr. Silkworth told us that In order for the message to be carried, it has to have depth and weight. It has to have depth and weight. You have to have earned your stripes. In order to earn your stripes, you have to have had a horrible, horrible amount of pain and then you earn your stripes. Some people are anorexic Some people are bulimic. Some people are like me on the obese side, but you have to have earned your stripes. And in order to do that, you have to have suffered quite a bit. And you also have had had to have recovery. You have to have had recovery. And when you've done that, you speak and understand very well the language of the heart. It's a language that only we speak and understand. We speak it, we understand it because we've lived it. We have absolutely lived it. Some of you have had all kinds of pain. Some of you have lived with this pain your whole life. And you come into this environment of Overeaters Anonymous and you begin to believe as children that the pain you suffered and the things you thought about and the beliefs that you had were secret and unique unto you. And you come in here and you find that even though the person may be a different color than you, They may speak a different language than you. They may be, have a different background than you. They get it and they are you and you are them. You are them and they are you. And if you scratch us, we all bleed red, don't we? We are all the same. We are all the same. And whether we have the anorexic side or we have the bulimic side or the obese side or whatever we have, wherever our bottom is, wherever that spectrum finds us, we have something very, very important in common. A physical allergy and a twist of the mind that drives us into oblivion. And we come in here alone and scared. And we come in here after trying every other thing we can possibly try. We don't normally come in here as a first resort. We come in here as a last resort. And so by relating to that, what does Clancy Immslin tell us? That when one alcoholic speaks to another alcoholic, so that the second alcoholic's feelings of profound differences begin to dampen, begin to reduce, and that second alcoholic starts to take action after action after action after action, after action that he does not even yet believe in, this is the point when recovery can take place. This is the point that recovery can take place. When we begin to see that it worked in someone else, Bill Wilson says, why not I? When he looked at Ebby's recovery and he knew that Ebby was an alcoholic and he knew that Ebby was suffering, he looked at Ebby and he said, why not I? why not you? Why not you? Life will take on new meaning to watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up around you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it, Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. I love seeing all the people here on our meetings every night on Zoom and hearing about your little, whatever's going on in your life and watching you recover. I kind of miss the live meetings. There's a part of me that misses it, but I'd rather sit here with 174 or 175 people than sit in a room with, you know, eight or seven. Maybe one day that'll change. I don't know. I kind of missed the live meetings, I guess, to a point. But the bottom line is, is that I love the conventions. I love the retreats. I love the workshops. I love everything about it. It's a great way of life. This friend that I was telling you about that's here from out of town, he is a wonderful person. He's been very successful in his life but I have a better life than he does by my standards, much better, not even close, not even close. Because my life includes God and it includes people. His, in a very limited way, I have a life that includes watching you guys. And when I was a little boy, a little kid, I think my greatest joy in life was your misery. And I think my greatest misery in life was your joy. Today I can revel, I can encourage others. I find myself being an encourager and I like that about myself. I like that about me. I couldn't do that in this disease. I could only criticize. I could only tear down. I could only destroy and like the white whale in Ahab's life, the only thing I knew to do was pull the structure down on top of me. No matter how wonderful it might be, I would destroy everything in my path. Now I can create, now I can be a constructor. I have to work at it, I'm not there yet. Boy, I've got a lot of work to do. Holy, holy crap, do I have a lot of work to do? And I've got a lot of changes that need to be made, but I'm working on them. I'm working on them, but it's so glorious a way of life. It's so fantastic a way of life that I cannot even begin to tell you. Perhaps you are not acquainted with any drinkers who want to recover. You can easily find some by asking a few doctors, ministers, priests, or hospitals. They will be only too glad to assist you. Don't start out as an evangelist or reformer. Unfortunately, a lot of prejudice exists. You will be handicapped if you arouse it. Ministers and doctors are competent and you can learn much from them if you wish, but it happens that because of your own drinking experience, you can be uniquely useful to other alcoholics. So cooperate, never criticize to be helpful is our only aim. Now, a lot has changed in the world and the change is in HIPAA and confidentiality and a lot of different things have changed in the world where doctors and hospitals are not going to cooperate with you and say, yeah, go see Fred Jones. He's a drunk. He's in room 128. They're not going to do that today. You are not going to have any access to anyone that is going to give you that information, but you don't have to. They're going to walk into the meetings. You're going to meet them in your life. You're going to see that they are going to come. And when they come, they will not remember what you tell them. They will remember how you made them feel. So don't stand there or sit there rather and say, I don't know what to say to the newcomer. Yes, you do. You can understand that Dr. Bob left us an inheritance. And what Dr. Bob's inheritance is, is this. He said at the last time he ever spoke, he said, let's keep this simple and let's not louse this up with complexities that are only of importance to the psychologist and the the clinician. Let's not louse this up with complexities. And at the very last, this boils down to two things, love and service. And we all know what love is and we all know what service is. You don't know what to say to a newcomer. Yes, you do. The newcomer is coming in and you're on the Zoom. Say, hey, welcome. I'm glad you're here hey, welcome, I'm glad you're here, goes a long way. Make them feel welcome. Yes, you do know what to say. You don't have to be the source of the big book information if you're new yourself. You can be the source of the source. What does that mean? Be the source of the source. You can point them in the direction of somebody who has been around a while, who has a very solid recovery. Hey, why don't you call this person? Why don't you call that person after the meeting? Why don't you stick around and maybe ask questions? Because after the meeting, I know in Scottsdale, we have questions and answers. You can be the source of the source. Yes, you do know what to say and remember, they will not remember necessarily what you said to them. They will remember how you made them feel. And we are not in the results business. Don't overdo it, okay? Don't patronize them. You know, don't, you know, oh my God, I'm so glad. I'm so glad to see you, that's great. Oh my God, I can't believe you're here. Oh my God, that's not okay. So, you got to use a little sechel. What's sechel? It's a Yiddish word for what? Common sense. Don't patronize them. Don't gush over them. Very matter of fact. Hey, I'm really glad you're here, Joe. Hey, I'm really glad you're here, Mary. Okay, very good. Top of 90. Ah. When you discover a prospect for Alcoholics Anonymous, find out all you can about him. Now, that doesn't mean I need to know his ATM password, and it doesn't mean I need to know uh, what mattress in his house he's got the money under. It means to know, is he a compulsive overeater? Does he want to recover? If he does not want to stop drinking, don't waste time trying to persuade him. Stop right there. There's a Yiddish expression, Hakmir Nishkin What does Hakmir Nishkin mean? Don't bang your head against the wall. If you are running up against a person who does not want to recover, stop hitting your head against the wall. Do you know what I'm gonna say today to my friend who doesn't want this about it? Nothing, nothing. He's got other Taurus too. His mother is very bad. But anyway, the bottom line is, is that I'm going to say nothing to him today. He doesn't want this. If you're with somebody that doesn't want this, stop, leave them alone. We are not in the results business. Nobody is up there keeping score. All right, here's Linda. She worked with 83 people and 82 of them recovered. Not bad, Linda. No. There's nobody keeping score. Remember the story of Bill and Lois? Remember the story of Bill and Lois? It was a Tuesday night and they were going to the Oxford group meeting and Lois was out working all day long and she comes home and Bill is sitting there going, come on, Lois, we're going to be late. So she threw a shoe at him. That's a good story. But I'm going to tell you another Bill and Lois story. Bill comes in and Lois is already home. And he says to Lois, he's very frustrated. This was uh, April or no, it was March of 1935. He was just about to leave for Akron, Ohio on a famous business trip. He says to Lois, damn it, Lois, I got this message from God that I am supposed to sober up these drunks and nobody's getting sober. And Lois turned to him and changed the course of the world when she said, but you're staying sober. Oh yeah, I'm staying sober. So for the first time in his adult life, he had put together several months of sobriety, Bill started drinking in 1917. This was uh, 1935. He got sober in December of 34. This was this was uh, March of 35. So he had four months of sobriety for the first time in his adult life. Don't waste time trying to persuade him. You may spoil a later opportunity. This advice is given for his family also. They should be patient realizing they are dealing with a sick person. If there is any indication that he wants to stop, have a good talk with the person most interested in him, usually his wife. Not always applicable today. In most cases, I don't know your relatives. I don't know. There are very few of you where I've met the family, where I've met, and I've been around a long time. Most of us will never meet the families. It's not as applicable today as it was then. They all lived in the same town. They all were from the same area. And they were, excuse me, they were going to the meetings. And so they met, they knew the family because when, when a person would come to the Oxford group in those days, they would bring their families. Everybody came, you know, I get this question all the time. Can I bring my baby to a meeting? Absolutely. There's no age restriction at a meeting. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily bring older children because they may hear things that, you know, maybe you don't want them to hear. You know, that kind of thing. But anybody can come to a meeting. There's no age restriction on that at all. Get an idea of his behavior, his problems, his background, the seriousness of his condition, and his religious leanings. I would leave that alone. Or I would leave that alone. I'm not going to get into a religion. Discussion here. I don't normally contradict the big book, but this is something where I'm sorry, the world is a very different place today than it was back in 1939 when the book was published. I wouldn't necessarily get into it. I do get calls from people, I got to have a born again sponsor, or I got to have a Catholic sponsor and they have to have six kids and, and, and I, or I got to have a sponsor that whatever, you know, if you're going to be that choosy, you're going to be in trouble. You're you're really, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, You need need this information to put yourself in his place. The only thing I really need to know about you is are you a compulsive overeater? And I very seldom, if ever, sponsor men today that don't have at least 100 or so pounds to lose, uh, maybe even close to 200 pounds to lose, something like that. I don't normally sponsor people in that normal weight range, not normally, to see how you would like him to approach you if the tables were turned. Now, next week, we're going to pick this up. But before I turn you loose on the world, before I turn you loose on the world, I just want to encapsulate some of the things that we've talked about this morning, because I threw a lot of material out there for you, and I don't want it to get lost. One of the things that we have to know in our heart is what God would want from us. And, you know, so much is said about should I should I be a pharmacist? Should I be a veterinarian? Should I be a a garbage man? Whatever that may be. I, I don't know. I'm not here to give you vocational advice. But here's what I can tell you. And I think I'm standing on solid ground. I think that what God would want for each and every one of us is to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. And he has qualified us very uniquely to carry a message of recovery to his suffering children. Few groups in God's world have suffered the kind of ignominity, the kind of pain, the kind of shame, the kind of horrible hell that the compulsive overeater has suffered. I'm not diminishing the nightmare of alcoholism. I'm not diminishing the nightmare and hell of drug addiction or gambling or anything like that. I'm not diminishing that, but this is a mother of a disease. And it is a disease that ransacks you from childhood in many cases, right to the end. There are few conditions that are as horribly debilitating as this one. You have been chosen. Just like at the end of Moby Dick, he says, I alone, Kwee Kwa says, I alone survived, so I could tell thee. You have survived your anorexia, your bulimia, your esophageal operations your weight your whatever shame whatever you whatever weight you got up to in your life or down to in your life you have survived it and the only way to keep it is to pass it to others it is of great joy it is an honor and it is a privilege because if you're in recovery you have been given the world and now you have an opportunity to give that recovery to the next suffering person. I could say a lot more, but we're at the time where we want to start q and I just want to, before I turn it back over to Tanya, I just want to remind you, yes, we will be here next week. Um, And please do not throw in my face the things I've already told you were my opinions on things. And please no math and for the love of God, no food questions. So
1: Tanya, I'm going to turn it back over to you. I hope this was helpful today.